Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Radical Candor podcast. I'm Kim Scott, author of Radical Candor and co-founder of Radical Candor, the company. And I'm Jason Rosoff, CEO and co-founder of Radical Candor. And I'm Amy Sandler, your host for the Radical Candor podcast. Today, we're talking about how to navigate emotions at work. And while it's always been useful to know how to manage your emotions at work, the many challenges of 2020 have elevated this skill from important to critical. Whether you're the one getting emotional or you're giving someone some feedback and they react with unexpected emotion, it's important to recognize that the only person's emotions you can control are your own. One of the worst things you can do is ignore other people's emotional reactions, emotions like anger and sadness and fear. They're all part of the human condition and people shouldn't have to leave their humanity at home when they come to work even if they haven't left home to work. So this is a question that we've been getting a lot lately. Kim, how do you think people should respond when they're seeing someone have an emotional reaction at work? Usually when when people are responding with an emotional reaction, there's one of two things. They're either mad or they're sad. (laughs) Those are the two emotions that we most dread, especially when we're offering people feedback. And I've given a lot of people sort of some coaching on on how to prepare for a conversation. And then they call me up afterwards and they say, oh, I screwed everything up. It was a disaster. The person burst into tears. And I really encourage people in these moments, the fact that the other person had an emotional response to what you said does not mean that you failed when giving feedback. The only failure is in dismissing these emotions that are going to get elicited when you give feedback. So the right thing to do when you get an emotional response. And Kim, let me just, I think that's such an important point. Let's just call that out, which is it doesn't mean it's not a successful feedback conversation. If someone has an emotional reaction, if someone bursts into tears, it's an opportunity to do something different exactly. in how you respond. Yes. It's the, the key thing. If someone bursts into tears or starts yelling at you, which are the two most likely things to happen when you have an emotional response, by the way, the most likely thing to happen is that the person will respond. Well, is actually the most likely thing. But when, when you have uh, when you have an emotional response, the, the key thing is to realize that you do not manage another person's emotions. Only they manage their emotions. And so taking too much on yourself, it's not your fault that this other person is having an emotional response. I mean, you may have said it badly. It may actually be your fault. I'm not letting you totally <laughs> off the hook. Uh, but the key thing is not to, to take too much responsibility for another person's emotions. The key thing is to respond, however with kindness and to try to understand what's the human need behind this reaction that I got. And maybe it's because I said things in in a way that was not ideal, but maybe it's just because it's really hard. What this other person is experiencing is really difficult for them. And it's my job to bear witness to the emotions. Yeah. In our workshops, we, we say meet emotion with compassion. Yes. Or curiosity, even like what's what, why is this person so at, mad at me instead of getting mad back? And you mentioned to not take responsibility for the other person's emotions. What is it really important to take responsibility for? Kim? 
Thank you for that leading question, because I failed to explain it. You're exactly right. You can take responsibility for your own emotions if you're batting above average. Really, I find when I go into these conversations, the the best I can hope to do is is to manage my own emotions. It's not my job to manage the other person's emotions. And so if somebody starts to cry, it's very often my instinct to zoom over to ruin a sympathy, to go the wrong way on that dimension of the sort of challenge directly dimension. Whereas what I should be doing is moving up on the care personally dimension. And if somebody gets really angry, it's usually my instinct to get angry back and to wind up in obnoxious aggression and in the worst place of all. Whereas what I should be doing, again, is moving up on the care personally dimension. One of the things that we like to provide our participants in workshops are certain phrases that may be helpful. And and one of the things we also like to do is call out phrases that are not helpful. For example... It's not Don't personal. Don't take it. Yeah, it's yeah. not personal. Don't take it personally. I beg of you, just eliminate that. All of you listeners, just eliminate that phrase from your vocabulary. Don't take it personally. We spend more time at work than in just about any other part of our day. Of course, when things don't go well, it sometimes feels like a gut punch. And and so if the if the other person is having an emotional response, it doesn't mean that they're unprofessional or that they're taking it personally. It means they're a human being and treat them like that. And think of the people you like to work with the most. I'm sure that none of them fit the description of they have no emotional reaction to anything that happens <laughs> at work, right? Like people who who you like to work with, they do, they give a crap about, about work. That's one of the things that we tend to like about our coworkers. And so don't want to forget that in the moment when their emotion, they're, they're taking it seriously is awkward for us because we're sitting there in this conversation with them. I have a story. You want to hear it? Yeah. Yeah. So I was working at a, at a startup and we were debating about what the tagline of the company was. So we had come up with a name and, and we kept changing our mind about the tagline. And we had settled on a tagline, uh, which was, I think, powering the desktop, powering information or <laughs> some such drivel. And I woke up the next morning and realized that we had chosen the wrong tagline. And I came up with another one that was, in my mind, much better. And so I went in and I excitedly told the VP of marketing that I had come up with a much better tagline than the one we had decided on the day before. And he burst into tears and he was like, but I already printed the (laughs) t-shirts. And I'm doing actually right now what I did at the time, which was I thought he was being ridiculous. But in fact, I had a tendency to change my mind about everything every five minutes, and it created a tremendous amount of unnecessary work for the whole team. And at the time, I just sort of, I dismissed his emotional response as, you know, what is, what's up with you? Why are you taking this so personally? And it was exactly the wrong response. And in fact, it wound up with like the whole company going to the board of directors and complaining about me. I would have been better off and he would have been better off if I had tried to understand what was the human need and what was the professional need behind that outburst. Because I had, I had been screwing stuff up and I, I should have used that moment as an opportunity to solicit feedback. And, and I failed to do that. And it, it hurt me and it hurt the whole company. It's, it's such a great story. And I, if we could, I'd actually be curious what specifically knowing what you know now 
what would you say or do in that moment when you saw the tears and I got the t-shirts printed? How would you respond now? I think what I would do, but I would love some coaching, Amy, from you and Jason on what I, because maybe I still won't have it right. But I think what I would do differently is I would say, I can see I frustrated the hell out of you. And I imagine this particular instance was very frustrating. And I imagine there's a lot of others and I want to hear about them. I think that's what I would say. I don't know. What do you all think? What should I do in that moment? It's sometimes it's hard to interpret what tears mean. I, I think I, I might start with the mea, mea culpa part of that and just say what I was hoping to do was be helpful. And based on your reaction, I don't feel like I am being helpful. Help me understand what's happening here. Like, yeah. what what am I doing wrong? I think even just recognizing don't know what's happening, I think can be can be really helpful. And it's an invitation for someone to correct you, which in that moment might feel very helpful <laughs> to them. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's such a it's such a great point. And I kind of building on what Jason is saying, I think with emotions, like especially with tears, tears can be sad, but they can also be rage and frustration, and we don't know quite what's underneath it. So really acknowledging the mea culpa and being curious, like what's going on for you? What would you need from me right now? So even Kim, I would maybe tweak the part around what are all the other things that I've frustrated you around and really meet the moment and see what would be of most help for them in that moment. They might be so upset they can't really think straight and sort of have other examples. So it might be good to follow up when there's less emotion. And I think to what Jason said earlier, meeting the emotion with compassion And I think sometimes we'll talk about the importance of naming emotions, but it can actually, I think, be, uh, have the reverse effect if you name someone else's emotion for them, because they might be having a different experience than what we think it might be. Yeah. Or they can correct you. Yeah. You know, maybe he wasn't frustrated. Maybe he was really worried about all the money spent on the t-shirts. I don't know. I think what I did, I think the the real big mistake I made at the time was I, I started trying to solve the problem of the t-shirts mm-hmm. rather than acknowledging and, and therefore making him feel ridiculous for crying about having ordered the wrong tagline on the t-shirts. Um, in fact, by the way, I still have two of those t-shirts with mm-hmm. the old tagline pointed. And I, I wear them to sleep all the time. And I think of this story. I, uh, sort of. That's two or three times. Str- I don't know how good that is for your restorative sleep. Well, it's, it's, I like thinking about my past mistakes and remaining aware of them. <laughs> I think the title for this one could be, it's not about the t-shirts. <laughs> well, but yes, it was about the t-shirts also. Like, like, I think one of the mistakes I made was minimizing the importance of the t-shirts. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we need to hold both the emotion and the the work piece to it. Yeah. And, yeah. I mean, it's almost like about... radical candor. We can do both things at once. We can have the yeah. care and the challenge. <laughs> yes. The, t- the tears and the t-shirts. We'll call this no false dichotomies. <laughs> yes. So, you know, Kim, you talk a lot about this idea of emotional labor of a boss and having to react compassionately to other people's emotions without expecting them to do the same for you in return, even just like that story that you just shared. But I think one of the things I want to talk about is how in order to support that emotional labor as a manager, as a boss, that we have to take care of ourselves. So whatever we need to do to manage our own emotions, whether it's getting enough sleep, whether it's wearing the supportive t-shirts to sleep, (laughs) getting exercise and, and, you know, whatever food nourishes us, the, the free time, the family time, et cetera, because I think what's also really important you've talked about is that how your bad mood as a manager can ripple across uh, and infect the entire team. So, so Jason, 
Can you share with us how you manage your emotions at work and what you do to stay centered? Yeah, I'm drunk by 10 a.m. Uh, that really, <laughs> that really helps. Is that why all uh, our meetings are at 10 a.m.? That's why they start at 10. Um, we probably should cut that. Uh, and we sure. And we sure. I think okay. it's good. I like it. <laughs> I, I want to say first that I'm not always successful at, at this. I, I think one of the most important things about this guidance is not to judge yourself harshly for when you screw this up. Because that is the start of a downward spiral of not being able to manage your emotions at work. So just first recognizing that what we're trying to do is help ourselves become aware of our emotional state. So that's step number one. And I think that actually requires some intention. And and usually what what I find is that I become desynchronized from my awareness of my emotional state and something will happen where someone will say something or react to something that I'm doing, which will bring me back to awareness of my emotional state. And I think in those moments, it's really valuable to name what you now perceive to be going on to say, I just realized that I'm actually really sad today. I'm really sad about this thing that happened outside of work. I'm really, or I'm really frustrated like in this moment by this conversation. And I haven't given voice to that because naming is the first step towards managing. Like we can't fix, we can't manage what we, we don't understand. And the last thing I'll say is like, that's when you find yourself sort of walking down the path unknowingly, but it is really helpful to take mental inventory of, of how you're doing that day. One thing we've started to do as, as a team, Kim, is we have a little Slack robot that checks in with people once a week to say, you know, how, how did your week go? Like, how, how did you feel overall this week? And then there's some other questions about what did you get done? What do you hope to get done next week? And the last one is like, what are you worried about? Or what do you think is going to block you going into next week? And one thing that I've noticed is that that exercise, like, how did you feel this week? And how are you preparing yourself next week has been this really great tool to give me the opportunity to do mental inventory on my emotional state. And when I go into Monday morning and I look through people's responses, we do this Friday afternoon, I look through people's responses on Monday morning, that exercise helps bring awareness to my emotions, but it also gives me a read, a little read on how people, other people might be doing. So small things like that, like just to check in with yourself of like, how are you, like, how's it going today? How are you feeling today? And what are you worried about? Or what do you think, or what's on your mind going into next, next week? And sometimes it's really positive. And so because I think there's an assumption in all the things I'm saying that the negative emotions are the ones that you have to most manage. But one thing I will say is that leaders who are overly buoyant can also fall into some very serious, very dangerous traps. Um, and I learned that probably most successfully, uh, if you can say it that way as a product manager, because as a, as a product manager, part of your job is to pull the best ideas that you can out of a team of a cross-functional team of people with very different perspectives. The whole point is, is to improve the thinking uh, by getting different perspectives together and then making a decision. But if, as a more junior product manager, the things that tend to get you the most accolades are those moments where you have like a spark of brilliance. 
and you have this really great idea and you drive this really great idea through to conclusion. And I brought that habit with me, that buoyancy with me to when I started managing a large team. And all of a sudden, my buoyancy, my excitement was met with a very similar reaction to the one that you described, which was not so much about changing my mind, but about people feeling like I was squashing them underfoot. Like I would come into a meeting and I would be super excited about everything that I had just thought of the night before. And everybody else would just feel sort of trampled by that excitement. And so this awareness of emotional state, it's not just about managing negative emotions and the contagion that can have, but also having an awareness of like, sometimes our positive emotions can have a negative effect if they cause us to not consider the perspectives or experiences of others. Such a great point. Yeah, it is. And I'm thinking as someone, I think similar to Kim that has a lot of ideas and for me, an idea is very exciting and aware that just like we say that radical candor is measured not at the speaker's mouth, but at the listener's ear, we might say ideas are measured not at the generator's mouth, but at the implementer's <laughs> desk. And I know sometimes when people have great ideas, the person on the other end is maybe just hearing, how am I going to fit this idea in into all the other things that I might have? And that excite, excitement of the idea and the other person might be try to translate that into product and hours. Yes, such a great point. One other thing I want to mention about the Slack uh, tool that we've been enjoying is that, and this may be just me, but I find something very validating when the Slack bot gives me a little celebratory thing and have a great week. And, you know, when it asks, is there anything blocking my progress? I've noticed that not just me, but a few other folks will sometimes say not just the actual sort of work, but emotional states. We had a podcast around the number of spoons that you have and energy levels, so I just want to call that out as well, that not just a mental check, but actually getting a sense of how much sort of human energetic resources do I have to get through the week, the week ahead. Yeah, that doesn't have to be a huge investment, right? Like I, I take five minutes to answer those questions once a week. And that is enough to remind me, not just on the day that I answer the question, but as I go through the week, because I, I think I'm going to have to answer this question again on Friday. And like, am I aware? Like, what, what is blocking me? Uh, what, what's getting in my way? And Kim, you often quoted, quoted yourself of saying that, you know, that, that story about the person asking you, how long do these radical candor therapy yeah. sessions need to take? <laughs> and I think there's a, there's a sense that, that emotional management has to be this huge investment. I think building self-awareness, there is a cost. It's not it, efficiency from emotion, a successful emotional management is, it is more like exponential growth. The better you get at it, the more efficient you become. There's, it's like a squared effect. But initially, you will have to put in a fair amount of work to become more self-aware and to learn to better manage your emotions. But as you do that, like the actual amount of time that you have to spend every week doing this is really like a few minutes a day of like checking in with mm -hmm. yourself. It is not some sort of like and, and it's often crazy just investment. remembering to do it. Like I've done enough work around knowing that once I start to get a sensation on the right side of my neck, it means that I'm starting to get angry or irritated or there's some sensation happening. So I know that when that starts to arise, that's when I could get curious. I just have to remember that that's, that's happening. Yeah. Can, I think that's a really important point, Amy. It's not just about mental che checking in mentally. It's checking in physically with yourself. When I was pregnant with twins, I had to wear a heart rate monitor all the time because my heart rate wasn't supposed to go over 130 or something. And I was sitting at my desk and I got an email that made me mad. And the heart rate monitor went, I hadn't even stood up. Like I had no idea. And, and I realized 
I needed to be more aware of what was happening in my body, that I was completely sort of disembodied at work sometimes. And I think remembering that we all live in our bodies and, and they'll tell us a lot about what's going on with us if we listen to them. That was one of the biggest ahas that I learned was that emotions are physiological reactions and that we can actually understand what's happening by listening to our body. And they can give us great, great signals if we, if we listen to them. And that understanding that it's in the body can actually help us create some space between the emotion and any response that we might have. Kim, one last question, then we'll get to our tips. When people work in environments where emotions actually aren't encouraged, you can see yourself falling into what, what Kim, you've called a silence and rage cycle. Can you explain a little bit more about this silence and rage cycle? Yeah, silence and rage was me for a long time. It's a big part of why I wrote Radical Candor. So I think very often when we're told it's not professional to have an emotion, we can't express our emotions at work, then what happens is when you're angry about something at work, you don't trust yourself to share what went wrong because you're afraid you'll appear angry. At least this was my, especially early in my career, this happened to me. Uh, and then because I didn't say anything about what made me mad, it happened again. And the next time I was a little madder. And then it happened again, a little bigger, and I was madder. And, and by the time I finally said what was happening. I think there's like, I think there's a Sesame, Sesame Street episode about this. I was, I was unhinged. I was completely unhinged. I feared the first time that if I said something and I was emotional, I would be called irrational. And I'm sure there's some gender uh, issues going on there too. By the time I was in such a state of rage that I couldn't help myself, but giving voice to what had bothered me, I really did appear to be, I was being irrational, in fact. I will say it wasn't just an appearance. And so I think that's what, why we talk about offering radical candor immediately, right away, because the, mm -hmm. the longer it builds up, it, it goes critical and it explodes like a dirty bomb all over your relationship. So don't let that happen to you. Yeah. And I feel like we're talking about being afraid of the emotions we can see when my experience as a manager is you need to be much more afraid of the emotions that you do not know about. Your own because, or like, other people's? Either. I, I feel yeah. like both, both of those <laughs> both of those things are, are really bad as a manager. Like your goal as a manager is to have as close to perfect information as you can. And so why would you discard an entire really useful source of information that affects human contentedness and productivity, like fear the things you don't know. For me, that's like the lesson of, of leadership is like, those are the things you have to worry about. The things that you don't expect to happen, the things that you do expect, like it's the black swan problem, right? The things you do expect yeah. you manage for. Yeah. It's the things that you don't expect. And so like the situations where leaders are telling me I'm discarding all of this information because I just don't want to know what's going on in this other person's life. I'm like, okay, well, you're doing that at your own peril. Yes. Yeah. No, it's a really, it's a really important point. I think we, all of us, we communicate and we learn on two planes at once. One is sort of intellectual and the other is emotional. And if you ignore fully 50% of the signal that's coming at you from other people, don't be surprised when you have a communication snafu. It's a great intro into our radical candor checklist, which are tips you can put into practice immediately. Kim? Tip number one. Don't think that you can get away with ignoring emotions at work. You're working with human beings, not robots. A big part of being a manager is emotional labor. 
You have to respond compassionately to other people's emotions without expecting them to do the same for you in return. Pause here and think about this because it's pretty rough and it might offer you a clue to revise how you're dealing with someone who you work for or someone who you work with or someone who works for you. We undervalue the emotional labor of being the boss, but this emotional labor is not just part of the job. It is the key to being a good boss. Tip two, manager, manage thyself. One of the best tools I've found is to label emotions as they arise. There's a phrase you might like, name it to tame it. By noticing where emotions live in your body and getting a sense of your own emotional map, you can create some space between the emotion you're experiencing and overly identifying with that emotion. So you can say then, rather than I'm angry or I'm annoyed, I'm experiencing anger in my body. I encourage you to try this out and see if you also experience a shift. Did you That's, hear Elsa growling when you said that? Did that no, is, is, no, she experienced so anger great. in her body. She's experiencing. She was what growling. What is she experiencing? Anger. And finally, meet emotion with compassion. If somebody gets upset or angry or defensive, it doesn't mean you failed in some way. It means they care about their work. And that's a good thing. Your job is to react with compassion, not to say, don't take it personally. If someone becomes emotional at work, acknowledge the emotion and ask simple questions to move the person out of the limbic system or the threat zone, uh, such as, tell me how you're feeling right now, or how would you like to proceed? These have the effect of helping someone move out of threat response and into problem solving. Acknowledging emotions is a great way to build relationships with your team, and the quality of these relationships play a vital role in your success or failure as a leader. Tip number four. Bring a water bottle for yourself and the other person. If your Lyft driver can do this for you, you can do this for the people who you're meeting with. Sometimes the opportunity just to unscrew the top of water, take a sip of water, Put the water back down, screw the top back on is all the break you need to get out of that fight or flight zone and back into your head. Such a great tip. And for those of you who are listening and not able to see the Zoom recording, yes, Kim Scott did have two imaginary water bottles in her hand. She unscrewed each of them. I handed she one to the Zoom. She handed yeah. one to the Zoom. She did uh, take back a, a swig and uh, I could tell she seemed much more relaxed. Well, for more tips, head to radicalcandor.com backslash podcast. And if you like what you hear, please do rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Bye for now. Take care. Thanks for joining us. Our podcast features Radical Candor co-founders Kim Scott and Jason Rosoff, is produced by our director of content, Brandy Neal, and hosted by me, Amy Sandler. Music is by Cliff Goldmacher. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Candor and find us online at RadicalCandor.com. We'll see you soon.